Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Michelle and Scott, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for, having, for us. having us. Scott, whereabouts are you calling in from today? Because we know Michelle's in Adelaide. I am calling in from Sydney. Oh, fantastic. Right, so we've got uh, Wanaka, Brisbane, Adelaide and Sydney all covered today. So we're very excited. And it has to be said, it's been a long time since we're all in the same room together. Oh. Uh, I think it was actually, May, am I right in saying May 2019? Oh, was it the first time I met both of you guys? Yes, yeah, certainly for us. It was it was at the Little Congress. It was fantastic. Yes, it was a good session. You guys had uh, great umbrellas. <laughs> am I right? <laughs> yeah, am I right? Yeah, everyone remembers us for those umbrellas. Um, I still got it. Oh, I still have mine too, although oh, I fantastic. do like the beer coolers now. I do like the beer coolers. Well, yeah, look, we try and cater for every sort of uh, occasion. <laughs> but no, it wasn't that little conference, Brad, and that was an interesting sort of thing for us. At Ocean Tech, we sort of just started getting out there and having a, a talk to people, really, and some interesting finds, and that's how we come to talk to Michelle and Scott. So, Ozmap, tell us why you're here. Tell us all about mm-hmm. it. Oh, well, I'll start the ball rolling, I suppose. Yes. So Mm. OSMAP, the Australian Microplastic Assessment Project, I will just add in, was the recent winner of the Eureka Prize for Innovation in Citizen Science. Congratulations. Yes. Yes, thank you. We were the top three finalists. 68 independent judges chose us. well done. So we are very, very excited about that. But overall, yeah, OSMAP, we started in mid-2018. We're part of the Total Environment Centre in collaboration with Scott from Macquarie University. The program was designed then and uh, we modified it to suit the needs that Scott and I thought would would best cover what we're interested in, which was all about, you know, science, environmental education, engagement, then leading on to more so nowadays in source reduction. And we can talk about that as we go along. And now three years later, you know, we've trained close to, gosh, We've done 55 training days around the nation, got about 8,000 people engaged. We have removed well over 3 million pieces of microplastic from our shoreline, so we're pretty excited about that. Just to confirm, you guys were both involved on day one? Scott was, yes. (laughs) (laughs) The original proposal was designed by my predecessor, Andrew, from the Total Environment Centre, and in those days Mm. it was called the Australian Microplastic Action Project. 
being part of the Total Environment Centre and them are very much into, you know, campaigns and um, minimising plastic in the environment. But Scott and I knew each other from, gosh, how many years ago, Scott? <laughs> Twenty. 25 years ago in uh, previous worlds and so we sort of talked and decided we wanted to to change it up a little bit and so we changed into the Australian Microplastic Assessment Project because we were keen on assessing microplastics on our shoreline. So yes Mm -hmm. and we officially launched in July 2018 at Manly Cove and yeah that's where it all began. And now, Michelle, you're now, am I right in saying, Program Director of OzMap? And yes. I think, Scott, you're OzMap Research Director, but you also are a Senior Lecturer and Senior Research Fellow at Macquarie University. Is this all factual? This is I'm all... making this up? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this is all correct. I think many people in the environmental field have multiple hats. I know Michelle's involved in a few different things as well. Yeah, so for me, I was there from kind of almost day one with helping with the creation of OzMap and brought on as kind of providing some the science behind, you know, the citizen science. Yeah, so I'm based at Macquarie University, one of the research partners and, and science providers in the program. Cool. You guys have both very different backgrounds as well. Scott, you've made science cool, it has to be said. I think a lot of, I think science often <laughs> yeah. gets a bad name, but I think as far, as far as, you know, scientists go, you must be what, like the, one of the rock stars of the, uh, you know, industry, dare I say. Oh, I like but, to think And so, Michelle, but... <laughs> <laughs> let's leave it like a, a fact. Let's keep the facts rolling. Sure. You're a rock star in the science industry. But, and Michelle, you've got a, you've got a very different background. You spent many, many years studying marine megafauna. I did. Well, I'm basically just keen to get your backstories now because they're both yeah. very different. How do we all end up with this, in this one amazing location? <laughs> yes, you're right. My background is in marine megafauna. So I suppose my original story started when I was four. How long have you got? Like I'm saying, no. But, um, <laughs> so my mum and dad, my dad's army, I moved a lot. They took me to a place over here in Adelaide then called Marineland and I had an experience with a dolphin which – a ball was hit out to me, I hit it back and I walked out of there at a four, as a four-year-old saying, Mummy, I want to be a marine babologist and work with dolphins. <laughs> Couldn't even say the words. And I never swayed from that dream actually. Wow, and, wow. you know, I'm now much older than that. And so for many, many years I was always told, you know, get a career that you can get a job in, that's all for dreamers, you know, Flipper and all those shows. And I basically lived landlocked. Uh, my dad was army until I was, I moved to Adelaide when I was just finished year 12. So I just turned 18 when I first finally moved close to the ocean. My animal experience growing up was at the RSPCA, cleaning out the dog and cat pen so I could be close to the animals. And so when I moved over here to Adelaide, I started uh, volunteering with a marine biologist, Mike, Dr. Mike Bosley on the Port River Dolphins, was able to go out and help him. And I had an amazing experiences. But by then I'd already applied to go to uni here in Adelaide to uh, Flinders Mm. University Mm. to do marine biology. They didn't have a marine biology program then, it was science really. And actually in third year there I met Scott. So that was quite a few years ago. Wow. He was doing his PhD on a project that I was doing a third year project on and that was basically looking at the impacts of a chemical uh, that they paint on the bottom of boats called tributyl tin, mm. and it causes little sea snails to grow penises called impersex. There you go. <laughs> Scott, I bet you didn't know that part. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, that's how I met Scott originally. But from then on, we had a couple of marine biologists come to Flinders and I was started 
my love of marine mammals. So my honours project, third year project and honours project was on the microbiology of seals and sea lions, basically their snot. And from then on, I then went and followed whales around the world for a few years, got lots of different experience and, and then moved back to Sydney when I turned 30 to do my PhD, which was on dolphin acoustics, the impacts of humans on bottlenose dolphins. So I uh, did a lot of underwater acoustics um, on the dolphins there and then went on to work with the Australian Defence, Defence Science and Technology and the impacts of noise on whales from Navy sonar. That was where I sort of started that love affair, which I still have, obviously, with whales and dolphins. But then as I got older, we moved to the northern beaches of Sydney and had Mm. my, I had my little girl. So I got back up with Scott and uh, I started, you know, really enjoying talking to people about the impacts of marine debris on marine mammals because I'd been involved in disentanglements Mm. and necropsies of whales and dolphins and pulled out cigarette butts from bellies and disentangled plastics. And so I started then working or volunteering with Take Three as their Northern Beaches ambassador and started lots of conversations. You know, I talked, I uh, was a... welcomed rather than Tim, I was the step in. He won't like me saying that, but, you know, they wanted me rather than Tim anymore. I didn't charge as much probably. That was the thing. (laughs) Sorry, Tim. So then I sort of started that conversations around impacts of marine debris. And so when, and I was working with the Total Environment Centre doing a lot of that teaching. When this job came up, they offered it to me. I said no, because I didn't want to work full time. And then I took it on. And that was uh, three and a half years ago. So that's how I got into it, yes. That's a great synopsis. And (laughs) I I don't know if we've ever had two doctors on the show at once, but Scotty, (laughs) you know, I'm feeling a bit intimidated already. There's no pressure there. It's a hell of a show to to get up on that one, mate. But thanks, Michelle. It's really good to understand. We always do it on the podcast. I understand where where people have come from. It gives you a really good perspective. So thank you. And um, Scotty. Good luck matching that one. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I can't. <laughs> so, Come on, Scotty, you can. Come on. Okay, I'll, I'll give it a crack. So, I mean, I like Michelle. You know, I grew up on the on the beaches. I'm, I'm a Cronulla boy in the southern parts of Sydney. So, Wixie will love that. Yeah. So spent a lot of time, you know, obviously growing up in and around the waterways and then I suppose it wasn't until high school and, and I had a really good biology teacher. We did a lot of work on, on rocky shore ecology, you know, which really sparked my interest in understanding the critters on the shores. And that kind of led to me going to uni and ended up going to what's now Southern Cross Uni up at, up at Lismore and doing a coastal yeah. management degree up there because of just, I'm kind of a practical type of guy. So I like hands-on rather than theoretical. The course up there really suited me and once again I kind of came across someone who was able to guide me and there was a professor there, Professor Nick Holmes, who really was into kind of marine and and rocky shore ecology, which uh, drove my interest even further into these critters that, you know, live on our shorelines and how they survive and what what goes on. And once I finished to get a scholarship looking at these rocky shore animals and the impacts of chemicals on them. And this gets to what Michelle said. So I ended up doing my PhD looking at these marine critters and the effects of these chemicals that come off the hulls of of boats. And as Michelle said, basically, uh, 
I was able to show that it basically changes the sex of, of the female snails. So these female snails were actually growing wow. a penis and a vas deferens. And so I spent kind of wow. four or five years of my life measuring snails' penises. <laughs> Like, why not? <laughs> Someone's got to do it. You've got to, you've got to laugh about this. I mean, but the hard thing is, is that you've got to squish them to break their shell without squishing them so that you can actually pull them out. And in those days, the calipers weren't digital. And so you'd have to measure these little snail penises. Mm. So, yeah, it was very – I really enjoyed the project. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so, yeah, so I was doing my PhD and, and Michelle was, as she said, doing her third-year project. So she contacted me because, you know, I was kind of the lead person doing that work in Australia at the time. So that's how it all stemmed. But basically you had to measure – there was this thing called a relative penis size index. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> This is awesome. I didn't expect it to go like this. No, you didn't think this was going to happen, did you, Jerry? I'm going to throw out my list of questions and uh... – Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll just throw the playbook away. Now, carry on, Scotty. This is going to uh, maybe get – you know, this is going to get global. So, yeah, yeah. So the relative penis size index, for those who are really interested, is a comparison. It's, it's, it's really to gauge how bad the, the population was. And so – as these animals are exposed to these chemicals, their penis size in the females grew. The female, the males didn't change. So oh. basically you, you can compare the rate of impact by comparing the female penis size to the male penis size, and that was that relative penis size index. Wow. <laughs> and so in Sydney Harbour, for instance, we had populations, all the females had this impersex, had Wow. some penal development and and what the repercussions are is that they become sterile as females yeah, yeah. and so populations were declining mm. uh, which has obviously implications to other marine life that feed off them and what they feed off scotty scotty i, I may have missed it but when we talk about the chemicals we're talking on the, the bottom of the boats would can you just explain any fouling yeah. from from shipyards you know can you tell us the source so back in the day they used uh what michelle called tbt's tributyl tin so it's a, a organic tin compound so it's all boats that are immersed in water you'll get fouling on them get algae and barnacles and mussels and things like growing on that now for a recreational vessel it's probably not as bigger issue but for large commercial vessels where time is everything to get from point a to point b having that extra surface area on the hull actually slows the vessel down and you burn more fuel to get yeah. to those your destination quicker so it's important to have a smooth hull and so they use this from the 1960s this tin based chemical and so it's designed to leach out of the paint all any fouling paints that you put on the hulls designed to leach it's designed to leach off to stop things attaching to it yeah yeah which makes yeah. sense it's called you know anti-foul and that's what it, i've never thought of it in that way wow yeah, yeah yeah so what it does though unfortunately is it just leaches into the water and what we found in our studies and what people were finding around the world is that this tin based chemical was actually causing these effects to other organisms and the marine snails that i was looking at and michelle was looking at are very sensitive to those changes. So basically I did studies all around the New South Wales coast and found 
every site that I looked at had some effect. And it's because such low concentrations were causing these effects. Mm, wow. Wow. Well, see, yeah, this is fascinating. Has that research led to changes yes. in the use of this TBT? Most oh, wow. That's great. So based partly on some of my work and others doing some work, became a state ban in New South Wales and then a federal ban, and, and now it's a, an actually a, a global ban on, on the use of these chemicals. Wow. I mean, just quietly, Michelle, you had a good intro, but Scotty's, Scotty's <laughs> done pretty well. I mean, now we're sort of, okay, we're into the Ocean Tech podcast. We've got Michelle, we've got Scotty, and this is just a fascinating chat. Um, I can't wait but to it, see where it goes. But it, it's an interesting <laughs> area, isn't it? And we could talk about just fertility impacts of the chemical contamination just in our marine life. Because I've just finished reading a book called Countdown. I'm not sure if you guys know. It's, it's by Shanna H. Swan, and it talks about reduced fertility rates mm. across the planet, both in the human populations yes. but also our marine species. And it's very strong links to various chemicals exactly around you know, phthalates, endocrine disruptors, and it is causing a significant decline in, the, in our fertility rates. Yeah, that's right. It's unfortunately one of the side effects. And, and like these marine snails, they were affected by this chemical. This tin was actually an endocrine disruptor. So what happened right. was it was only affecting the females because the chemical actually affects the enzymes that convert testosterone to estrogen. So all females produce testosterone, mm. but it's then converted through these enzymes. What this yeah. chemical was doing was actually blocking that conversion pathway. And so the females in the snails were actually just doped up on testosterone and they were the body was responding by growing these male sex appendages. Wow. And it's worth noting, like, whilst you've done this PhD, obviously in TBT and its impact on these slugs, you've spent many, many years looking at various chemical impacts on various species. Uh, you mentioned, like, uh, I remember pesticide and herbicide impacts on frogs, metal toxicity in the Great Barrier Reef, the endocrine disruptors from wastewater discharges. And obviously now, I guess maybe a bit more of your focus is now on microplastics. Yeah. So from my PhD, I kind of trained as an ecotoxicologist. So that's looking at chemicals and their impacts to the environment and, and to the biota. And so I've kind of rolled through the different kind of contaminants as they, as mm. they raise their head as an issue. So pesticides and, and herbicides, done some work in agricultural areas and the runoff of those and the impacts mm. of those. And metals is another one for me, the mining or, or even just urban areas. But yeah, obviously, you know, about probably going to say 15 years ago now, plastics uh, peaked my you know, interest and attention, spending a lot of time and you guys mm. spend a lot of time on, on the beaches and on the coast, mm. as do you know, a lot of your listeners. Yeah, you, know, you see these changes over time. And so I, I started kind of researching, trying to understand what it is, how much is, where it's coming from. And that kind of ended up leading to Ausmap, to as we we're probably aware is you know, the, the plastics do break up over time. And and we we have an understanding a bit of the big stuff, but it's a lot of the, the micro level and even the nano level that we just don't really have a handle on at this present time. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In regards to Ozmap, I might throw it to Michelle here. We're, we're pretty keen to sort of learn the scale of your data. I mean, everyone on this call would, would be self-confessed data geeks. Otherwise, we're just people with opinions. So can you just run us through, I guess, a, a bit more of a detailed overview about what Ozmap, what you're achieving, and, and just dive into a bit more detail for us? OSMAP is about education and awareness, but as scientists, it's about data, exactly. Data is the key, and that sort of separates us from a normal beach clean. So our program is designed to quantify microplastics on our shorelines, on any shoreline. As long as there's soft sediment, we can we can do our program. It's based on a scientific methodology from the UK that Scott has sort of modified in the beginning, and we trialled and tested it in conjunction, actually, with some of the folks from Take 3. So we've got around 350 samples from around the country now, and we ranging from zero right through to our highest loads is about 760,000 pieces per square metre over here in Adelaide, in fact. That's staggering. 760,000 a square metre. Yes. So whereabouts in Adelaide and what was the cause? I mean, you you have to go upstream and tell us about the site. Well, as you guys probably know, you know, I mean, certainly in the southern parts of Australia, our debris on our beaches don't come necessarily from oceanic currents. I mean, a little bit's bored in, but not a lot. Mm, mm. The northern part of Australia is another another issue altogether. So, uh, you know, mm, as you mm, know, most mm. of this stuff comes down our urban catch- catchments, down our stormwater drains, and this is what you guys are all about, and straight out into our waterways. And in this particular instance, it's in a wetland, which is obviously designed to do what wetlands do, is capture these contaminants, whatever they may be, uh, and filter it out the water before it then goes any further. This is an area to the north part of Adelaide. It's very industrial in this area. And it's all those stormwater catchments that basically flow into this beautiful wetlands that's used by, you know, migratory species, a lot of birds, a lot of different critters that live there as well. And then I was alerted to the issue there by the local council, the wetland officer, who was really concerned about it. And that's where we've started investigating. So we've done some OSMAP sampling, And so our program's based on collecting within quadrats and we collect replicates of that so that we have scientific validity and reliability. And then we capture the top two centimetres of sediment and we sieve it. But one point that we should note is that we collect between one and five millimetre. OSMAP is a citizen science project, so it's designed to train local citizens in the program. So we decided long ago that the one to five millimetre size class would be best because it's what we can see relatively easily without doing too much more lab work. 
So mm. we recognise, and Scott will talk about this, I mean, he collects a lot more of the smaller size fractions in households and, and, and whatnot, but for OSMAP itself, it's one to five millimetre. So they, this is 760,000 of just that size class as well. So 350 sites over, over a few, fair few years, and it's all different parts of Australia? Yes. Yeah, we've collected from as high uh, Thursday Island. We've got a school collecting out at Norfolk Island. Jen Lavers from Tassie collects for us sometimes on Lord Howe and also over on Christmas Island and Cocos Island. Right down in the southern part of Western Australia, down to Yelling Up down there, Tassie, all over. The only area that we haven't really covered to date is the northwest up around Broome. Scott and Kylie, the other part of our trio, they went to Arnhem Land recently, to Nullumboy, East Arnhem Land, and collected out there. And again, their issues are very different to urbanised areas. I mean, a lot of theirs is ocean, mm, coming in from oceanic yeah. currents, mm, mm, mm. and we're well aware of that. So we rate our sample areas from zero is a what we call very low right through to extreme, which is greater than 10,000 particles per square metre. Right. And yeah. the methodologies is obviously relying on citizen science. So you set up these, I've seen Scott on the YouTube videos on your website, but basically you set up these small little quadrants to define the area and essentially just scrape, like you said, the, the first couple of centimetres and then basically sieve the sand or sediment to, to identify the number of microplastics you know, between one to five millimetres. And then obviously you can sort of differentiate those different microplastics, et cetera. So basically a- anyone that is provided some suitable training can more or less do it quite comfortably. You're relying on citizen science, but it's obviously it's a fairly simple process, but also provides you a very, very useful body of knowledge as well. Yeah, absolutely. We want people to be trained in our program officially. So we Mm. run full day training days and accreditation so that we're confident that they're using our methodology correctly. So then we can compare data. That way we know exactly who sends us data. We know that it's collected in our method using our methodology and our data sheets so that we can compare it between locations. But it is a fairly simple method. Our program also enables then the teaching of what the different types of microplastics are and so that it all aligns within our database as well. Two things for the listeners. We'll show you where to go to. You'd apply somewhere through the OzMap website, I presume. That'll be in our show notes. But going back to it, so you're collecting this data. Now, obviously, you start analysing it more. What more can you tell us about it, Scotty? Going down the rabbit hole, what what do you think (laughs) is happening? Where is it all coming from? Yeah, yeah. What we're finding, it's very site-specific. So you can't generalise too much, and that's why, you know, it's important to get data from your local area. So we don't just collect the numbers. We look at the types. So is it like a pellet or a nurdle? which is those pre-industrial mm. pellets that kind of wash in. Is it a fibre? Is it, you know, foam? You know, is it film? Those type of things. We also look at the colours because that also helps us in, in telling a story of where it might be coming from. And we also look within that one to five mil, what size it fits in or is it outside of that as well. So collectively, this helps us to understand a bit more about the sources and that's really what, we're trying to get to now is understand where it's coming from. So one of our sites where we've got probably the longest data set is Manly Cove on the northern beaches of Sydney. And we've got data going back from when we started in mid-2018. So, you know, there's over three years of data there now. And what it's showing is some some nice, nice in regards to the data, 
seasonal trends. <laughs> the plastics, unfortunately, the numbers aren't changing too much in terms they're not going up, they're not going down. There seems to be a consistency there. But what we see seasonally is that, at least on that shore, the makeup of the plastic changes with season. And that's got something to do with the, the weather patterns, but also the mm. activities going on in the catchment or in the harbour um, at those times of years. In summer, you know, people are out having their slurpees or their, you know, um, their summer type drinks. And in winter, it's more, you know, maybe coffee cups and soup drinks. Yeah, but at the micro level, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so that's the beauty of having a long, a longitudinal data set where you're getting monthly data from, from Manly. Wow. And so that gives us a nice kind of idea of what's happening at a site. Now, not all, all sites we have that information and we've got mm. to make the best of it where we can. But what we know is when we look at the microplastics, most of it is relatively fresh, if you like, so we can kind of age it. So it tells us that it is more than likely coming from the local area. And then the types and, and the shapes and things like that also help us to understand from something like an industry and what's going on in your local catchment. Is there like a plastic manufacturer, for instance, in your local catchment that might be spilling these pellets, for instance, and it's washing down the drain into you know, the local waterways and onto the beach? And whilst it's sort of site specific, obviously, in terms of what you see and and, and how it changes, uh, there are some are there some general trends. Like for example, are most of the microplastics from land based sources as opposed to marine based sources? It depends what's going on. So if you're in near a uh, say a fishing port where they're using a lot of line, you tend to find a lot of fibres of those ropes and line. In, in your microplastic samples. And so one thing we also do on a subset of our samples is we send it out for further analysis with our partners at the University of Newcastle, and they tell us what type of polymer it is. I'm sure your listeners are aware, not all plastics are the same. Mm. And so just by eye, you can't always tell. And so, you know, is it a polyethylene or a polypropylene or you know, polystyrene even as a hard plastic? And then... You know, if we're looking at the fibres, then we can see that maybe it's nylon rope, you know, and that is, you know, maybe used in the fishing industry. So it, it tells us, uh, you know, where it might be coming from. But to, to answer your question, Brad, it's predominantly terrestrial-based. And something we've been doing more recently is now going back up catchment and sampling some of the sources. So looking at the tributaries that might be draining into the area, the stormwater outlets and, and netting those and looking at the micro coming from subcatchments now. And mm. so what we're finding in, in some of our data, and we've been doing a lot of work in DY, once again, on the northern beaches, to find out that a lot of the micro is actually micro before it enters the waterway. What about road runoff? So to Jeremy's point, there was a recent publication, I'm going to mispronounce it, but it was from the ICUN. Yes. It was talking about microplastics in the environment, and I think they sort of had a figure around 28% of all microplastics in our ocean is tyre wear and tear. Yes. And I think the, the next major source was clothing, textiles, from 
uh, laundry discharges. So, yeah, they're already microplastics before they essentially enter the waterway or drain environment or beaches, et cetera. Is that consistent with what you're seeing as well? Or? Yes, it is, most definitely. Wow. In that, there was also a category oh. of general urban runoff as well. <clears throat> and so it's not just tyre wear. What we're finding in our samples is that there's just fragments of bits and pieces of hard mm. plastic and soft plastics that get broken up, I think, just on the land, either through UV degradation or they're being run over by cars or traffic, and they're washing into the stormwater. So I looked at that report and it's it's kind of confirming what we're finding locally. That's interesting. So just to summarise, so and we do have a vested interest in this, so I'll, I'll, I'll clarify <laughs> that, but... Because obviously we, we want to, I guess I should protect, we make, we make money out of putting in assets to stop this pollution. Yes. But are you sort of indicating that stormwater is likely the key source of microplastics in our marine environment? From urban. From urban environments, yeah. Urban stormwater. Correct. It's probably an issue wow. that hasn't come to the fore as yet. And you know, some of our data is showing the importance of that as a source. The, the, the tyre wear is, is a big issue for that Mm. still part of that urban stormwater source and the wastewater discharge and and the the clothing fibers is also an issue to me i see that as more point source while the the urban issue is more diffuse source because there's Mm. so many as you know stormwater points of entry into a river or even onto our beaches so but but it's really interesting this data set around and, and recognise it's 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 a very large data set and it's using citizen science and people can pick holes in the quality of the data but it's kind of consistent with I guess more scientifically rigorous assessments I guess it, without criticising uh, this assessment basically saying the same thing but it's also highlighting a potential solution obviously if we if we can if we can essentially stop the flow of microplastics down our drains and and into our marine environment we can go a long way to actually solving this problem and in the absence of this data we're sort of wondering what to do aren't we really but, but, but going back to it so for I mean, obviously, Brad and I have discussed this many times. As a company, we've researched it and done a lot of investigation into runoff from roads. And in other countries all around the world, it's regulated that you have, when you build a road, especially an arterial motorway with 40,000 plus movements on a daily basis, you've got to treat it to a very, very high level. Whereas, unfortunately, in Australia, we don't seem to have gotten onto that yet. We're, we're happy putting sort of gross pollutant traps on major highways if we do put them on major highways because, you know, there's open swales that we can just, you know, let them go into that, that that I'm quite surprised in Australia we haven't put more pressure on because it is leaning to that. We've, we love our big roads in Australia. There's roads for all over Australia and, and certainly in highly urbanised areas, we see that load and, and we see it through our filters. Um, that's why the, one of our products, Storm Filter, it may not be the sexy product that takes out heaps of Coke cans and bottles and looks appealing to the public so they understand it. But, gee, the, this, this storm filter removes a hell of a lot of sediment. We've all collectively on this call, we've actually got to work harder to press this issue because it, it, it crosses different forms of government, local, state and federal. And, and, and as you know, that's hard. So I'd be keen to get your thoughts further on that one because, Michelle, um, you know, it's quite political, isn't it? It is very. And, and on that, and it's, it's hard because 
Uh, and this is exactly what Scott's saying, and I work very closely with councils over here on these issues. And it's not just the main arterial roads that's creating this. It's flowing down anywhere. And it's not just the coastal councils that are responsible because they're obviously these stormwater drains and networks go through multiple councils. So it is a state government issue and federally government issue. And everywhere is different. I mean, you look at places like Cooks's River or Parramatta River in, in Sydney, I mean, they're having mm. huge problems. I mean, the gross pollutant traps are wonderful for stopping the big stuff, but they don't stop the small stuff. And uh, as we know, the problem's smaller than you think. So, Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. Episodes are released weekly and the next episode will feature part two of this chat. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.